0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: It's Chicago in August 1968, against the backdrop of the Democratic National Convention and 10,000 anti-Vietnam War demonstrators have come to the city. They're met by 23,000 police officers and National Guardsmen who crack down, often violently, on the protesters. Six months later, when President Nixon assumes office, eight of the protest leaders are charged with intent to incite a riot. It was dubbed the trial of the Chicago 7, one of the most notorious court cases in American history. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking how important is truth to TV historical drama? The screenwriter and director Aaron Sorkin has turned the true story of The Trial of the Chicago 7 into a film about counterculture versus establishment, long-haired hippies against men in suits, and sometimes on the same side.
0: When we walked in here this morning, they were chanting that the whole world is watching. If we leave here without saying anything about why we came in the first place,
1: it'll be heartbreaking. The drama centers on the courtroom and the script is taken from transcripts and TV interviews from the time.
0: The riots were started by the Chicago Police Department. Sustained. Nobody objected.
1: Aaron Sorkin is no stranger to courtroom drama, having written a screenplay of A Few Good Men and adapted Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird for the stage. His best-known work is, of course, The West Wing, the political drama that still reels in loyal audiences 20 years after Bartlett left the White House. And he's known for dramatisations of biographical works too, including Molly's Game, the memoir of a skier turned money launderer, and The Social Network about the founders of Facebook. So when it comes to retelling reality, how far should fact be pushed from fiction. Aaron Sorkin, welcome to The Economist Asks.
0: It's good to be here.
1: This story was 14 years in the making. It ended up being more topical than you could probably have imagined for a lot of that time. Why were you so convinced that it had this enduring
0: relevance? My relationship to the story has evolved over the 14 going on 15 years that I've been involved with it. In, in 2006, on a Saturday morning, I was asked to come over to the home of Steven Spielberg. And just to be clear, that's not common. I don't hang out with Steven Spielberg. And he told me he wanted to make a movie about the Chicago 7. And I said, the Chicago 7, that sounds great. Count me in. This will be terrific. And I left his house, and called my father, and asked my dad who the Chicago 7 were. At first, I was just saying yes to doing a movie with, with Steven Spielberg. Then came research about a dozen good books, some of them written by the defendants themselves, a 21,000-page trial transcript, but most critically, time spent with Tom Hayden. That's when uh, it went from just being a project to do with with Stephen to what I thought was a a really good story to tell. And it began to organize itself. The film began to organize itself into three stories that I'd tell at at once simultaneously. One was the courtroom drama. The second was the evolution of the riot. How did what was supposed to be a peaceful protest devolve into such a violent clash with the police and law enforcement? And the third was that personal tension between Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman. I don't know what good it does to insult the judge. And it was in view of the jury and the press and for Anna Schultz, who'll be recommending sentencing for convicted. It's a revolution, time. We may have to hurt somebody's feelings. Two guys on the same side who plainly can't stand each other and each thinks the other is doing harm to the cause. Year after year, we were just unable to make the film, mostly for budgetary reasons. A film like Chicago 7 isn't going to have a, a, a very big budget. Every time a director would try to budget the film, they'd get to the two riots and those were budget busters. And then, Donald Trump started running for president and got elected. He had these rallies. There'd be a protester at the rallies, and Trump would get nostalgic about the the good old days when they'd carry that guy out of here on a stretcher and I'd like to punch him in the face and let's beat the crap out of him. And Stephen felt the time to make this film was now. And by then I had directed my first movie, Molly's Game, and he was sufficiently pleased with that that he thought I should direct Chicago 7, and he said, and now the riots are your problem.
1: A lot of people will be watching this in the context of of now, or they'll have come to sort of political maturity in the last few years, and they'll be thinking, "Well, this is set in a time when." Uh, the democratic machine in Chicago is in control here. It's under the iron rule of Mayor Daley in Chicago that this happens, yet it feels like a metaphor for the far right in the U.S. for police violence against the left or against protesters today. Did you choose a more nuanced political situation to address there? And obviously you've described how the story uh, came into being, but was that something that attracted you? You know, we thought
0: the film was plenty relevant when we were making it last winter, For the reasons I described, we didn't need it to get more relevant, but it did come last May when, after the police killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor here, protesters took to the streets and they were met in a number of cities by riot clubs and tear gas again. Sometimes I'd watch CNN, their coverage of the protests and think, you know, if you just degraded the color on this, it would look exactly like the footage we use from from 1968.
1: I think it's fair to say you like a good courtroom drama, don't you? <laughs> <I> do. <laughs> you do. <laughs> and why is it so appealing? I, I was sort of theorising a bit to my long-suffering producer that it is something about the fact that America is built on the idea of law and the strength of the law and the, the role of the constitution. And therefore, when the clashes happen, they feel perhaps closer than, than in other systems where the, the legal system has developed slightly differently, even in democracies. What is it about the courtroom?
0: The reason why I love courtroom drama so much and the first play I wrote was uh, was a courtroom drama is that the parts of drama, the structure of drama, just lay out so perfectly in a courtroom. The intention and obstacle is clear. The stakes are very clear. The opposing sides are clear. The jury is a stand-in for the audience. They know as little as the audience does. So there's a reason for uh, exposition. Mostly it's the dynamic that you get when a lawyer is cross-examining a witness. Do you have contempt for your government? I'll tell you, Mr. Schultz, it's nothing compared to the contempt my government has for me. We've heard testimony from 27 witnesses under oath that say you hoped for a confrontation with the police that your plans for the convention were designed specifically to draw the police into a confrontation. Well, if I'd known it was gonna be the first wish of mine that came true, I would've aimed a lot higher. It is an argument. It's the friction of ideas uh, that's happening up there. And as I said, the, the stakes are very, very high. Then there's what you just said, which is what courtrooms represent to us in the US. They are a place. where where things go the way they're supposed to go. Equality, justice, fairness, uh, that juries may get it wrong from time to time. You'll have the occasional OJ verdict, but just procedurally, the, 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 the argument is heard the way an argument should be heard and the accused is given a lot of protections. So when it doesn't work that way, as it doesn't in, in, in the trial of the Chicago 7, the literal trial of the Chicago 7, people go kind of crazy. Bill Kunstler is played by Mark Rylance. He, he became undone during this trial because nothing was working the way it was supposed to. And that also is something which we today in the U.S. or the U.K. can identify with, that it seems like for the last few years, Nothing has worked the way it's supposed to in a democracy.
1: And a courtroom drama also means you have transcripts, you have news footage, you have TV interviews from uh, the period. To what degree is this detective work? And for someone like you who likes to base a lot of your your drama in fact, in, in events, but then piece them together from the truth of the story, from these different perspectives, what's the balance there between creative license and what it says in the documents?
0: The difference that you're talking about is the difference between a photograph and a painting. And this is a painting. It's the difference between journalism and art. And it's the difference between accuracy and truth. So, for example, one of the more harrowing moments in the trial and in the film is when Bobby Seale gets bound and gagged in the courtroom. Uh, the judges just had enough of him. Orders him to be dragged away by the U.S. marshals. And in the judge's words, marshals, take that defendant into a room and deal with him as he should be dealt with. Which is taken directly uh, from the transcript.
1: But this actually happened over several days, didn't it? In in the trial, as much as I found it very difficult uh, to to watch, it was very very well played by him. I kind of wanted more of it, and I wondered if there was a version of of his story which we we could have pulled out some more.
0: Bobby sat in the courtroom for four days, bound and gagged before the judge separated him from the rest of the defendants and gave him his mistrial. So why did I do what I did? Because I felt that we had landed the truth of the moment, that the most harrowing part, he was, this happened, bound, gagged, shackled, beaten, uh, the whole thing. And that to leave Bobby there and continue the story for four more days, paying attention to other things. It would start to feel like it wasn't that big a deal that Bobby was bound and gagged, that life goes on. With him sitting there bound and gagged, he would almost seem like a sight gag. Okay, journalistic accuracy, he would have to be there for four days. Artistic truth, you, you can check the box and be done with that, because if you don't, you're going to start to Dim that truth a little bit. You're gonna to start to normalize the fact that he's doing it.
1: It sounds like you think the journalistic accuracy and an artistic truth can be in conflict in the telling of a story.
0: Sometimes and sometimes not. You can be journalistically accurate and land that truth too. If you're writing, uh, if, if, if you're a reporter covering that trial, there is a way to write about the fact that Bobby Seale has been bound and gagged in this courtroom for four days in a way that is equal to uh, uh, to the importance uh, of that, because you're describing it. I can't do that. I, I, I have to dramatize the whole thing. And the, the fact is, if you gave me a, say a moment, but I need a lot more than a moment, if you gave me some time, I'm sure I could think of a way to 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 land the impact of the journalistically true version two
1: this is a really interesting area when we tease apart how much we expect historical drama or particularly recently rooted historical drama we seem to be a bit more kind of liberal about it when it goes back a few centuries have your wicked way with Thomas Cromwell let me give you an an example and, and tell me what you think and that's where Eddie Redmayne as Tom Hayden reads the list of Vietnam casualties. And, of course, it's been pointed out that this happened earlier in the trial. It was David Dellinger, not uh, the Tom Hayden character. And it did include Vietnamese names as well as American ones. Now, in another context, one might say changing this around, missing out the the competence, as it turned out, in this conflict on which this drama turns might be called fake news. What's the difference?
0: Okay, here it is. For the whole film, one of the stories we've been telling is Tom Hayden versus Abby Hoffman, right? Kind of a reflection of today's tension between the left and the further left, people who want incremental change, compromise, and people who are tired of incremental change and and want revolution. Tom's thing was, can we please just behave ourselves while we're in this courtroom so we can be found not guilty, get back out on the streets and continue trying to end uh, the Vietnam War? Whereas Abby, along with Jerry, They felt that their job every day in the courtroom was to demonstrate to the judge that they have no respect for these proceedings at all, that this is the demonstration right now uh, in the courtroom. This is the revolution uh, right now. And Abby throughout the film is needling Tom, questioning his courage and bravery. Accusing him of getting a haircut for court, of basically, you know, j- just just bowing down to the judge.
1: Rarely has the word a haircut being flung around <laughs> <laughs> it's such a, but it, it's it's stuck in my mind because everything in it it sort of says a lot.
0: Yeah, exactly right. You did something that you knew would would please the judge, that would make you less you and more like what the judge wants uh, you to be. So our final moment in the starkest possible terms the judge says to uh, uh hayden if you make your final remark brief and respectful uh, uh and without any political content i will show mercy on you before uh, the sentencing we even skip over the guilty or not guilty part because we know they've already lost so the triumphant moment is going to be hayden not being brief not being respectful and having as much political content through the simple act of, instead of giving a political speech, reading 4,794 names out loud into the trial transcript. That was the truth that I wanted to land, that Hayden was, in fact, incredibly courageous, and that at the, at the witching hour, at the moment of truth, he was what Abby said he was on the stand, a badass of an American patriot. If you... Have him also reading names of North Vietnamese soldiers. If you do it earlier in the trial, if you have Dellinger do it, none of that much more important truth lands. You've done a journalistically accurate version of the trial of the Chicago 7, which is basically dramatizing a Wikipedia page. It's just not what I wanted to do with the story. There are things I wouldn't dream of changing for any reason. And there are things I have no problem working with as a dramatist without feeling like I'm perverting history at all.
1: Let, let's talk more broadly about your political drama, which I and many of our listeners and uh, certainly a lot of my colleagues have followed for many years, judged by the number of questions that they sent into me. Um, new generation of people finding the West Wing, I still have it on VHS,
0: believe it or <laughs> not,
1: which gives away rather too much. I listen, I still pop it on and a lot of people in my family, my colleagues are discovering it for the first time. That sort of combination of inspiring rhetoric, high hopes, the coalition of good intentions, uh, feels like that that's something that, you know, that that collapsed rather spectacularly, certainly at the end of the Obama era, but also like more generally is the kind of wonky idealism, could put it like that, of the West Wing leaning heavily on the Clinton years. is It's still remotely credible, not just divided America, but in a world the way it is now.
0: I I, I think so. It wasn't a response to politics. It was a a combination of two things. I I, I tend to, I I like writing idealistically and and romantically. I like writing about heroes who don't wear capes. They don't have superpowers. They're just, they're, they're people trying to do the right thing. And I felt like in popular culture, Uh, Our leaders, I think it's the same in the UK UK as well, our leaders, especially our elected leaders, are portrayed either as Machiavellian or dolts. Um, uh, They're either evil or incompetent. And I just thought, why not do a, a workplace drama set at this very interesting workplace where you can tell almost any kind of story? Why not do a workplace drama where these people are every bit as competent and committed as the doctors and nurses on a hospital show, as the policemen uh, on a cop show, as the lawyers on a legal drama. I, I think that you could do the same kind of show today. I think the difference would be that everything, every episode of the show would be seen through the eyes of red or blue, right or left. So half the country automatically would be terribly offended by it.
1: And how would the Joe Biden presidency rival of a new president in the White House? Does that matter in the sense that he's not a kind of ideal president? He's not, you know, he doesn't have the sort of glamour. He certainly has experience. He certainly has gravitas. But uh, he's not the most fluent speaker. Would you find difficulty making drama out of a character like that? Or would you say, yeah, I can do something with him. I can work with Joe.
0: That kind of president would be very interesting. I mean, we're, we're talking about a, a man who, as, as as far as we can tell, and we've known him a pretty long time, his heart is in the right place. He's on the side of the angels. I, I had never thought of it before, but since you mention it, there is drama to be gotten out of uh, someone who is, who is more private. We are big fans over here of The Crown. You know, one of the really interesting things about the character, whether she's being played by Livia Coleman Claire Foy is how much she doesn't like being a public figure, how uncomfortable she is with that, the value she places on just a quiet workmanlike competence. We all find very interesting here.
1: Just as a a final shot, as I'm looking at you in a nice clear uh, call here, as all of us are on Zooms, etc. What's the impact of that? Can you imagine writing your zinging electric Quotable, jokeable about down the line dialogue for Zoom meetings, and you know that sense of phrases and evasions that we're living with day to day. I'm wondering if it's going to change your craft, Aaron Sorkin.
0: No, the answer to your question is no. I cannot uh, imagine uh, uh, writing writing for Zoom. In addition to the, the the technical challenges that I'm looking forward to not being challenges uh, anymore. And in addition to, you know, theaters with their big screens and and the great sound system, what what I'm really looking forward to is is this, that neither The Trial of the Chicago 7, nor most of the films that we're talking about uh, right now, have ever played to an audience. They've played to a lot of different people in different places at different times, but that's not the same as an audience. There is nothing that can replace the shared experience of uh, a couple of hundred strangers in, in, in an auditorium when the lights go down, laughing at the same time, being silent at the same time, gasping at the same time, having the film resonate at the end uh, at the same time, walking yeah. out the of theater at the same time. Nothing's replaced that in 2,500 years. And I am confident that once it's safe, we're gonna go back to the movies.
1: I'll be the one next to you with the popcorn just spilling it, spilling it at the wrong moment. Sounds like you prefer that to see, but uh, great to talk to you, Erin Sorkin. Thank you for joining us. You bet. Good talk to you. Our thanks to Erin Sorkin there. And we'd love to know what you think too. Do dramatists have free reign to rewrite history? And are you like Erin, yearning to return to the big screen or happy with those box sets? Would you watch a film? that's set on a Zoom call. I just hope it isn't mine. Write to us at radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. You can hear a lot more about US politics in the Checks and Balance podcast. They've looked at Ronald Reagan's approach to the demonstrators. For your best introductory offer to all of our content, go to economist.com slash podcast offer and the link is in the show notes. The producers today were Amika Shortino-Nolan and Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating, pile ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse?
1: The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right.